Hey guys, welcome back to Silicon Street Academy, a podcast on venture capital, technology, and entrepreneurship geared towards college students and young professionals. If you're new to the podcast, go ahead and follow us on Spotify and LinkedIn, and definitely check out all of our existing episodes as well. Today, we're privileged to bring on Sean Cantwell, a managing partner and member of the founding team at Volition Capital. Volition Capital is a growth equity firm located in Boston that focuses on investing in high growth tech companies. Sean specifically specializes in making investments in software as a service and tech-enabled service companies. Prior to his role at Village Capital, Sean served as a VP at Fidelity Investments. So, Sean, welcome to the show. How have you been doing? I'm doing great, Alex and Connor. I am honored to be a guest on this show. Thanks for having me. <laughs> great. Um, so, I just gave a little bit of background on you and kind of how you, you ended up at Volition. Um, but could you tell everyone a little bit more in depth about your history, kind of how you got into investing and specifically growth equity? Yeah, I mean, you forgot to mention the most important fact about my background, <laughs> which I am proud to be a Notre Dame class of 99 and a former resident of Not Hall, which I understand Connor are also uh, residents of. So uh, just another extra little benefit of getting to know you guys. Uh, so born and raised in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Uh, it was my dream to, to go to Notre Dame, went to Notre Dame, majored in finance. Uh, I will tell you, in 1999, coming out of Notre Dame, even as a finance major, uh, employment opportunities in finance were not as well understood as they are now. Yeah. Um, there were very few kids going into investment banking, investment management more broadly, whether you're talking about public equities or private, yeah. was a complete unknown and a mystery. Um, I was also graduating at a time when there was this phenomenon called Y2K, when there was, there was a great concern that all the computer systems were going to shut down because all the <laughs> was done in two digits and yep. it wasn't going to be able to translate into 2000. So uh, all the then big five, now big four, uh, you know, uh, uh, consulting firms uh, affiliated with, with accounting firms came and just hired kids in mass. And I went and joined yep. Arthur Anderson and I was doing large scale ERP implementations, uh, living in Chicago, you know, think about it. You wake up, you catch the first flight Monday morning to some city and you're there for four or five days and then you fly back and you're in these, you know, kind of long-term uh, engagements. I will tell you, it was a great experience in order to, you know, kind of round out some of my technical skills. Uh, I did have a double major in computer applications. I'm not sure if that's still an option at Notre Dame, um, but but that consulting experience helped, helped round that out and also kind of sparked a little bit of a, an interest in me just in, in technology more broadly. Um, but after doing that for a couple of years, I realized I probably should have gone more the finance route. Um, and, yeah. and I felt like I was, I was missing that and um, actually thought about, you know, kind of hit and restart and going to do investment banking. Uh, but it just so happened that my college roommate had done banking for a couple of years and had moved, just moved to Boston to join a private equity firm called Summit Partners. And he was like, dude, skip, skip the banking. I think <laughs> yeah. be perfect. Come interview. I did. Flew to Boston, you know, met 10 partners, all of whom had degrees from multiple Ivy League institutions. Uh, and, you know, I left those two days of interviews saying, I'm not totally sure what private equity is, but this seems awesome. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I accepted the job and moved the next week and then had like a really awesome, you know, three and a half year experience there, which really exposed me to growth equity as a, as a category, right. With, you know, yeah. which is really a subset within the broader private equity landscape. 
that was amazing. Um, I was then fortunate enough to go to business school at Harvard. And then after that, joined, uh, you know, a group called Fidelity Ventures, which was the in-house, uh, you know, kind of venture affiliate of, of Fidelity Investments. That's where I met my current partners, Roger and Larry. And in 2010, we spun out and launched Volition Capital. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and so, you know, we, we had a, a previous podcast with, um, so, you know, someone who works in growth equity. So we, we kind of went over what that is, but we've also had some people on who are, you know, founding or founders of different companies, whether it be in tech or, or, you know, the consumer market, um, you know, you founded like, you know, a growth equity firm. Could you go like talk a little bit about like what that actually entails, you know, as your customers being your LPs and just a little bit about kind of how you set that up? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you mentioned our LPs as customers. It's actually a, a question we ask ourselves quite mm -hmm. a bit, like who are our customers? Yeah. Is it the LPs yeah. whose capital we're investing or is it the entrepreneurs who we're actually giving money to, mm -hmm. but nevertheless need to sell our capabilities of why they should take our money as opposed yeah. to firm <laughs> ABC down the street. So yeah. I think we have kind of two customer sets, at least that's mm -hmm. how we, that's how we view it. Um, from an LP standpoint, you know, who gives money to private equity firms? It's folks with large pools of capital. So think university endowments, state pension funds, wealthy individuals, foundations, um, insurance companies, um, folks like that, right? And they're, larging they're managing large pools of capital they're taking a diversified investment strategy and private equity, you know, the downside is it's illiquid. It's tied up for a longer period of time, but you know, those folks really, really view this asset, asset class as uh, the opportunity to generate some alpha to drive returns in, in the broader portfolio. So when we think about our LPs or our investors as our customer, what's the best way to serve those customers? It's to generate really strong returns. Yeah. Um, it just so happens that all the things we need to do to generate strong returns also position us favorably with the other customer set, which are the entrepreneurs we're investing in. Mm -hmm. um, and and what, is it, what does it take to position yourselves well with entrepreneurs? Well, you know, you have to conduct yourself in a way where an entrepreneur wants to work with you. Um, yeah. The types of companies we want to invest in, they have options. And... Yeah. There's a human element to this business. There's a financial element for sure. And there's lots of analysis we do. Um, but there's also a human element where a lot of times the companies we're investing in, it's a founder that's put a lot of his or her time and energy and money into this business. And for the first time, they might be bringing in outside capital. Mm -hmm. And with that comes risk. So you have to you know, conduct yourself in a way um, you know, that makes that entrepreneur feel comfortable and, tr and trust you. Um, you know, so I say that because it's important. It's also something we think about when we're hiring folks to join the firm. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we just want good people who are going to conduct themselves uh, with integrity. I think that's critical. Um, entrepreneurs also want to take money from people who know what they're doing and have experience in the industry they participate, right? Mm -hmm. So, so as it relates to Volition, we have kind of two core focus areas and we're organized as teams to go after those, those categories. So we have a software team, uh, which is where I spend my time. 
And then we have, you know, an internet slash consumer team, which is focusing on, you know, think about it like e-commerce and, you know, some emerging uh, direct to consumer brands. Um, you know, within the software world where I live, um, you know, it's important to build up the domain experience and understanding of what's really necessary for a, for a high growth emerging software as a service business to succeed and thrive and hopefully reach great heights, 50 million of ARR, 100 million of ARR, uh, and, and beyond. Um, you know, and entrepreneurs want to draw upon that experience that you've built up over time across a broad set of portfolio companies. Mm -hmm. So again, if you're positioning yourself well to the entrepreneurs, uh, that means they're going to want to work with you, which means you have an opportunity to get into really interesting investments. Um, and then if we conduct ourselves in a way where we're appropriately managing risk reward to mm -hmm. optimize return down the road, yeah. All of that's going to come back full circle to satisfy our LP interests of strong returns. Yeah. 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 That makes a lot of sense. And I'm curious, you know, you, you touch on this idea of like trust with the entrepreneur and your LPs. And obviously like kind of once you can establish that trust that obviously like sets up success for you guys uh, and momentum, but I'm curious, like what, um, what the process looked like when you were going like, just first starting out like the fund, like raising like capital, like from the LPs, like, you know, if, if this is like the first fund that you guys are putting together, I'd imagine that um, there might be like some hesitancy on like the LPs part compared to just giving it to partners they've worked with in the past. Like, what is, what does that look like? Cause obviously trust is like a big component in it. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's a great question. And uh, I would say our path as a investment firm in many ways, mirrors that of the companies we invest in, or any startup for that matter. Um, you know, Connor, you're right to point out early on. You know, you say, "Hey, we're going to go raise a, a fund," <laughs> and even though the, even though you know the founding team of Volition, we had unbelievably high conviction that the market needed our strategy, and all we needed was capital. And if we could get people to believe in us and provide the capital we were going to deliver strong returns. Like there was no question in our mind whatsoever. Mm -hmm. The problem is we were kind of unknown to the outside LP world, right? Like right. we're just showing up and asking people to take a bet on us. And that's very similar to a startup business, right? Yeah. Like every entrepreneur, I mean, it's an incredibly risky th thing uh, for an entrepreneur to leave a stable job or sometimes there's folks who decide to leave before they even graduate college and start a business, you know, which, which tells you there's a lot of conviction there. Uh, you just need to get other people to have that same conviction and, and be willing to bet on you. Um, so, you know, I'd say early on, you know, we had to talk to a lot of investors and spend a lot of time. It just so happened that we were also launching a firm at perhaps the worst time to, to launch a firm. So this is yeah. like still in the post 2008, mm you know, yeah, yeah, not a great environment <laughs> where LPs were still a little bit overweight private equity because yeah, private equity doesn't mark to market in the same way that public equities do and they need to maintain balances within their portfolio. So there weren't a lot of investors making new commitments to first time funds. Um, so I'd say um, the only way you get through that and you come out the other side 
is that you have to have a lot of conviction and you got to believe in yourself and what you're doing and you got to have persistence to stick to it. I'd say there were plenty of times in that path where, you know, we kind of look at each other and say, Hey, is this, you know, are, are we going to get people uh, over the line to really believe in what we're doing? Uh, and thankfully we had that conviction to carry, carry us through. And I think entrepreneurs, every, every entrepreneur has experienced that same thing. Um, and then the tables kind of turn. Um, as you start to have success, then investors come to you. So that's true for entrepreneurs. I mean, it's very often I'll talk to a company and uh, CEO, perhaps a company that's never raised money and now they've gotten to a big scale and they say like, yeah, where were you 10 years ago? Like, I don't need you anymore. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and now investors are begging them to get in the company, right? And yeah. if you're an investment firm that's had success over time um, and that success becomes known, then your phone starts ringing too. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think the other way that the investment management world mirrors that of entrepreneurs is just because you can raise capital doesn't mean you should. Mm. Um, True. And, you know, an investment firm shouldn't just go out and raise as much as they can it's you got to be intentional. And this is true for companies too. It's like, what would be the uses of capital? Uh, can I efficiently deploy this capital to generate a return? Um, again, it's the same whether you're an entrepreneur um, you know, or a partner at a, at a private equity firm. Sure. And, and Sean, so I'm curious, like looking at, at a growth equity firm more as a, as a business versus say, instead of like solely as an investment firm or you know something on the buy side, what are some of the competitive advantages that generally firms in the buy side industry try to implement to establish some sort of, you know, uh, some sort of differentiator in the market um, outside of like, you know, having a superior network or superior uh, group of investors or founders that are really well connected here, there. What are like the real differentiators that you or other places you know of try and establish to, to, to attract more, more capital? Yeah. So, you know, if I just look at the industry more broadly, I think there's a variety of different ways you can kind of position yourself. Uh, you can position yourself as an industry expert, right? So we are the healthcare growth investors. We are the software growth investors. Uh, and if you take that industry specific focus, you can build lots of capabilities around that. And then obviously over time, your portfolio grows and companies want to associate themselves with success, right? Yeah. Um, as firms get larger and they have more resources, um, you know, you're starting to see more and more firms build internal capabilities where you might have folks on staff uh, that help portfolio companies with recruiting. Um, so we have that at Volition. We have a head of talent. And, you know, the pitch to entrepreneurs is, you know, as part of your growth to this next stage, you're going to need to level up and hire executives and we can help you with that. Um, you know, there are firms that will, you know, build out a team of operators um, where uh, they will leverage those folks to kind of go in and participate and help management teams navigate uh, tricky situations. Yeah. Um, you know, the networking, I'd say that's something that every firm would pitch. Um, the reality of the value of that network is highly variable, you know, based on the yeah. Firm, yeah. relevance of, of, uh, of the team. So I'd say that's something everyone pitches. It's probably mm -hmm. less effective. Um, you know, at Volition, we launched an advisory board 
actually this week, which, um, oh, nice. you know, we, we pulled together, um, you know, 15 folks who are either founders, CEOs of, you know, billion dollar plus outcomes and or uh, functional experts at highly successful publicly traded companies. So think about, you know, head of marketing, head of finance, yeah. head of sales, et cetera. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and we view those folks as an extension of us in our network. And, you know, these are the folks that the entrepreneurs we invest in are, are trying to become. And, uh, you know, they go to that, that link on our website and they say, well, like, wow, we can have access to folks like that. I can't even imagine how much, you know, wisdom we might be able to gain from them. So mm -hmm. that's a point of differentiation. Um, you know, and then another point of differentiation, I mentioned industry, another is stage. So, um, you know, there are LPs, you know, there's this question of who's your customer, is it the LPs or the entrepreneurs? If it's the LPs, um, LPs are looking for exposure to different asset classes and different stages therein. Uh, so there are folks that might say, hey, we're really focused on, you know, late stage buyout. Um, and that can cut across industries. There are other folks that are saying, hey, I'm looking for, you know, kind of early stage venture exposure in technology specifically, um, you know, so kind of catering your focus to meet that demand, I think can, can also be effective. Um, yeah. But none of these strategies matter if you're not delivering strong returns. You need to deliver sure. strong returns at the end of the day. Yeah. And I think, you, you know, your strategy needs to, um, you know, dictate your focus and where you're investing resources and how you're approaching entrepreneurs, all in the spirit of trying to, uh, you know, invest in great companies that are going to, you know, reach, uh, you know, pretty big outcomes. Yeah. yeah. So, so speaking of investing in great companies, um, you know, what, do, what do you guys look at at your firm uh, when deciding to make an investment, particularly, are there kind of any like key performance metrics that you're looking at? Um, is it more quantitative, more qualitative? Um, you know, from my understanding is kind of, as you get to the later stages, it gets more quantitative than just big picture. Um, so just kind of curious what your perspective is on that. Yeah. So, uh, my partner, Roger likes to say there are five things, uh, that matter in any investment product market management, 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 uh, they matter equally. Um, so the team certainly matters. And I think that's true at any stage mm -hmm. of investment. Um, you're right to point out at the growth stage, you are underwriting actual business performance. Yeah. Uh, so we're not doing early stage venture where it's a few folks in a garage with a whiteboard and a big idea. Um, we're underwriting, um, you know, companies where they got a broad base of referenceable customers, they've achieved some meaningful scale already. Let's say if it's a software business kind of north of $5 million. Uh, one of the metrics we're looking at, um, we, want, we want growth. The faster they're growing, the better. Um, we want capital efficiency. Uh, so what does that mean? The less money they've raised, the better. Um, I'd say we want big markets, ideally, although that's kind of subjective. Um, we want a team that has really big ambition and motivation to create something of significant value. Mm. Um, we do focus on, you know, bootstrapped companies. Mm. Um, you know, so, so those are folks that have achieved some level of scale without raising huge sums of money. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
But we need to know that now they're at this inflection point where they really want to step on the gas, put money on the balance sheet, invest ahead of the curve to really drive superior outcomes. Mm -hmm. uh, in software, um, retention is a really big one. So we want to know that the customers are happy. They like the product. Ideally, it's a must have. And the scorecard for that is that they're renewing their subscription every single year and hopefully they're doing it at a really high rate. Um, retention, we look at on a gross and a net basis. Um, you know, gross is just how much of that, you know, if, if you have a hundred bucks the prior year, um, you know, from a hundred clients, uh, how much do you have a year later? Uh, if you still have 92 clients paying you a buck, you had 92% gross retention. The net retention is inclusive of, of expansion and upsell. So hopefully those 92 who stuck around spent more than they did the prior year, which okay. could take your net retention up over 100%, which is terrific, which means that if you don't sell a single thing the next year, you're still going to grow. Um, yeah. And uh, you know we're really honing in on how much value creation can take place with whatever capital we're putting into the business. So we want to understand that that go-to-market motion is really finely tuned. Um, there's always some experimentation that needs to take place, but you know we want to have some sense that if you put X dollars in the top of the marketing funnel, you know Y dollars are going to come out the bottom yeah. <laughs> in terms of of new revenue. Um, we're looking for a team and a CEO founder, ideally who are equal parts strategic and visionary and can see the finish line and position that company's place in this emerging market. But then at the same time, have an operational discipline and a focus on the details uh, to help drive the company towards, towards that outcome. So uh, it's part science in all the data. We request a lot of data. We slice and dice it every way imaginable, imaginable cohort analysis. We're looking at customer acquisition costs, lifetime value of those customers. Um, but then there's some art too. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's where your experience comes in. Um, over time as an investor, you start to develop like a gut instinct. Um, and hopefully it's right more times than it's wrong. <laughs> when you're in that deep in the diligence phase and you know you feel pretty good but there's still some lingering doubt that that's when it's gut check time and you know you kind of have to to take a leap a little bit because there's no guaranteed outcomes here uh but you have to feel like the reward you know far outstrips the risk you're taking yeah and you know to follow up on that um i'm curious you know once you decide to to make the initial investment um you know, I know some like, I guess probably venture capital firms who are a little earlier, they'll sometimes do follow on rounds like later on. Do you guys do things like that? Um, or is it kind of, you know, once you're in, you, you stick with that amount and you let, you know, a, a firm that specializes in a, in a later stage, uh, you know, help them two, three years down the line when they need more money? What, what does that look like for you guys? Yeah, so I'd say when we make our initial investment, and this is probably also true of a lot of growth stage uh, investors, mm -hmm. you want to feel like the capital you're putting in the business can take the company, um, you know, to greater heights in terms of incremental revenue, but it's also enough capital to take that company back to break even and or profitability on the other side of that, right? So 
we're never taking the approach of just investing as a bridge to the next round where mm -hmm. we view the next round as inevitable. Yeah. That said, many of our investments do raise subsequent rounds of financing. And that is because they choose to run that play over again, right? Mm -hmm. Where they've invested capital into the business. They've grown the business. They've gotten back to a point of profit generation or close to break even uh, with extended cash runway. And they say, wow, gosh, this opportunity is even bigger than we thought. Let's go do another round. Yeah. In those cases, we want to support our portfolio companies and we'll participate to the fullest extent we can. Um, there are times where the team and the board want to go to the external market as a you know, kind of for a, a market check, if you will, on price, like how do you determine the price of that next capital coming in if you don't yeah. have an external market check? Um, and there are cases where new investors will come in and will participate, you know, uh, alongside those folks. So certainly, uh, you know, we have strong relationships with many other firms that we've, you know, kind of worked with over time. And I think that's pretty typical of this industry. Yeah, that's, that's great. And then kind of looking at the portfolio as in its totality, I know obviously when you're a finance student, I really took investment theory last semester and we're talking about portfolio structure. Um, and when you're trading public equities, it's very easy to do a lot of analysis on portfolio structure and looking at kind of risk, uh, risk factors and then kind of, you know, standard deviation, looking at sharp ratios. What does portfolio kind of theory or like your portfolio structure look like in growth equity? Um, I'd imagine, you know, in, in VC, it's not, it's obviously so early stage, you're not really looking at the long-term kind of risk necessarily, but in growth at equity, as you're getting further along, is there some sort of like analysis you're doing on a portfolio-wide basis, or is it really just kind of looking at it as a, as a company by company opportunity? Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, if I answer that question more broadly of how do folks across the industry think about it, I, I do think you're right to point out uh, for early stage venture firms, you're probably making a much higher volume of low dollar bets, uh, all of which have to have big ambitions with the potential to generate strong returns. You're just not sure which ones are going to hit, right? Yeah. Um, in our segment of the market, um, that could be true. There are some funds who still take a very diversified approach towards portfolio construction. We tend to take a pretty concentrated approach on a relative basis, at least relative to our peers. So, you know, our funds might have anywhere from, you know, 10 to 15 companies per fund. And the way we look about the way we look at each individual investment is, you know, it needs to satisfy a couple criteria. We want to feel like we're not going to lose money. That's number one. It's hard yeah. to make up for lost capital. Uh, so, and, and how do you, how do you, how do you underwrite for that? Um, if a company's reached a certain level of scale without raising large sums of money, which we look for, um, yeah. that means that even if things don't go to perfection, um, you're still probably not going to lose your money because, you know, we're the only investors, um, in many cases, which means we have preferred stock. So even if things go, go down, um, we're still in a good position to, to kind of return capital. That does not in any way mean that we're conservative in our approach because we're not. <laughs> yeah. We also need to believe that every single investment we make has the potential, potential to generate like north of a 5x return on our okay. capital. I think yeah. we have, we've studied our own returns and returns across the industry. And there's a viewpoint that to really have a top performing fund you need to have at least one, maybe a couple 
investments in each individual fund that, you know, hopefully return the fund um, on yeah. their own um, or short of that are generating very, very strong returns. Um, so we don't ever want to waste an at-bat on a company that's likely to generate a mediocre return, right? So gotcha. like we have to feel yeah. there's a very reasonable chance based on the product, the team, the market, the trends, um, that there's a chance for like real breakout potential where you can generate an interesting return. So that's how we, we approach it. Now, over time, you know, once you're a year to, a year to two into an investment, it starts to crystallize. Like this company has breakout potential. (laughs) (laughs) And then those are the situations where you start thinking more about, follow-on financings, which was an earlier question. Um, Do we just want to do that? Do we want to go to the external markets? How do we properly capitalize this company to really help optimize, um, you know, for, for those, for those outcomes? I think, you know, Warren, Warren Buffett has said that, you know, diversification is the best way to kill returns. If you have a great idea, put all your money in that one great idea. Um, We're not that concentrated. We'll never do that. (laughs) Still diversification. Yeah. Um, but we do want to have a meaningful enough bet in each of our investments that if they hit and things go the way we would hope, that that investment can really have a meaningful impact on fund return. Yeah. Well, so quick kind of follow-up question on that. I know you look for you said you look for like a five x. Is there a specific timeline uh, for exit you look for in that, or what's what's the general kind of consensus on when you're looking to get or kind of recuperate that cash at, at the five x return? Yeah, I would say like a kind of canned answer in the industry would be, yeah. you know, probably three to five years. I think okay. in, reality, right. yeah. in reality, you know, it often takes longer. Uh, yeah. Funds in this industry have a 10-year life. Um, that doesn't mean that you absolutely have to sell every company by 10 years, but that's typically the thought process. That's the period of time, you know, during which you're going to make the investments but then also harvest or sell those investments within that yeah. within the 10 year 10 year window. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, go ahead, Connor. Um, and so I'm curious, you know, I've been reading upon a little bit up up on like kind of the the risk return profile of different kind of investment strategies, whether that be VC, growth equity, private equity. Um, could you maybe discuss a little bit? I, I think you know, growth equity is becoming and even increasingly more important asset class generally. Could you maybe just touch upon like why you think it's like an attractive kind of uh, investment philosophy from a risk return profile compared to, you know, maybe the private equities or the early stage VCs? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, maybe going back to your earlier question about customers and you kind of framed it as the LPs, right? It used to be the case that LPs allocated capital within private equity to two buckets. It was venture capital, or buyout. Those were the two buckets. Yeah. And then this category now referred to as growth equity was kind of this fuzzy in-between area. Mm-hmm. I'd say, you know, many of the larger, more sophisticated LPs have a third bucket, which is growth equity. Okay. Mm-hmm. So now how do these map on a risk reward profile? Right. Um, I think there there is a perception that if you were to plot those three along that continuum. Mm-hmm. Uh, there would be this idea that venture has the highest risk, but also the highest reward. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and there would be the perception that buyout, perhaps because they're larger companies, 
um, have the have the lowest loss rates, right? You're you're least likely to lose your money, and then and then growth equity is perhaps somewhere in between. I actually don't believe that. I hmm. think I think that um, growth equity in many ways, uh, depending on how you define it, has lower risk than private equity. And the reason I say that is most growth equity investments are straight equity investments. You're not putting a lot of debt on the balance sheet. Why yeah. not? In many cases, these are you know growth businesses with without physical assets, right? So right. there's only so much you can borrow against mm -hmm. in order to fund that acquisition price. Um, there's lots of arguments for why you would finance an acquisition with debt. It's other people's money and you pay it down over time. And through that delevering process, you can generate really, really interesting equity returns. Sure. The risk though, is that if things go sideways, yeah. <laughs> the bank owns the company. Right. Yeah. I mean, we try to avoid those situations, right? Um, we want to be like senior on the liquidation model, right? Where we're not beholden to the banks through um, high levels of, of debt. Um, then you say, okay, the reward, let's think about the reward side. Mm -hmm. All right. So venture, man, that's where the rewards right at, right? Cause you're getting in early. Yeah. Um, yes. You can have some great winners um, through a more traditional early stage venture approach because mm -hmm. you're getting in early and you can get meaningful ownership for a small check size. Yeah. It's just really hard to find a winner yeah. um, <laughs> when a company's at conception stage, right? Mm -hmm. um, we're trying to find these companies that are at an inflection point and ready to scale. So the product risk never entirely goes away, sure, but has been largely de-risked by the time we come along. So if you think about like startup to growth stage, you got to develop a product and it's got to yeah. be a product that works and it's got to be a product that customers want and like and can't live without. Yeah. That piece has been pretty meaningfully um, de-risked by the time we come along. Um, and now the company's looking to get aggressive by putting on the money on the balance sheet to really scale sales and marketing to go grab market share. Mm -hmm. So there's still huge opportunity um, for upside and value creation, particularly given where we're getting involved. In the grand scheme of things, a 10, 15, $20 million software business, um, you know, is still fairly small, um, you know, certainly relative to public companies. Yeah. Um, so at least for us, in our strategy, it, it works and we feel like we have found kind of an optimum risk reward trade-off. Mm -hmm. Uh, that we think, you know, at least up to this point and hopefully going forward, is going to deliver strong returns for, for our investors. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and so, you know, before we, we wrap up here with these uh, few rapid fire questions, I, I'm curious if you could touch upon, you know, you're trying to find the winners. I saw you, you recently made an investment in a Creatio, if I'm pronouncing that right, um, startup in like the no code, low code space. Um, could you maybe give some background on kind of what no code, low code means? Maybe um, you know, why you think that's an important tech trend going forward and where the company invested in falls into that. That's just one of the spaces I know is really popular among investors uh, over the past few years. Yeah. No, you're a computer science major, Connor. Yeah. You tell me. <laughs> um, so, uh, so low code, what does that mean, right? Um, the simplest way to think about it is a highly configurable platform 
that enables non-technical users or folks that might be referred to within an organization as citizen developers yeah. that can use this platform to spin up applications to automate workflows yeah. in the organization. Mm -hmm. um, and what is the opportunity, you know, broadly? If you look at IT spend across the enterprise, the vast majority of it, and we're talking tens and tens of billions of dollars, is spent on internal custom IT development still. Even today, with the advent of all these, you know, kind of best of breed applications, and you know, low code platforms uh, provide the promise uh, to kind of shorten that IT delivery cycle. A, mm -hmm. so like faster time to market on an application to meet a business need, uh, but then B at a much lower cost. Yeah. Um, uh, so that's the appeal. And then you know, in the case of Creatio, which you mentioned, uh, they have built kind of applications on top of that platform as part of their go-to-market go strategy. Mm -hmm. uh, so they provide, you know, kind of business process automation uh, as well as some CRL, as well as CRM applications. Um, and then the clients who purchase those applications can use the platform to kind of extend those use cases uh, throughout the, the organization. Yeah, I, I I definitely agree. I'm, I'm as I, I mentioned previously, I'm working at like a cybersecurity firm, but they focus on kind of um, you know like a crowdsource model in the sense of uh, you know all these companies like have all this IT spend and they can't find anyone to do it right, and so kind of providing the opportunity for these these citizen developers to to do a lot of that stuff, I think is really interesting uh, and a cool trend going forward. But I'll hand it back over to Alex to. Uh, wrap up with the uh quick fun uh final questions <laughs> all right yeah Sean. so so this is kind of the last section we have to do this doesn't have to be really related to anything professional um it's just five quick questions um and you know make it make the answers as long or short as you like um so we'll just get going with the first one here is just what books are you reading right now or what's like a book you've read that you might recommend to people uh so i'm a big um i like to read business books um okay. you know so one i read recently uh was grit mm -hmm. um that book was written by angela duckworth that was given to me by a ceo uh that we're we're investors in um nice. i thought that was good and it really talks about uh you know kind of how entre entrepreneurs can kind of persevere in in tough situations that's a good one i love anything that malcolm gladwell has written um agreed <laughs> so uh you know i i'd recommend those i'm just looking over at my bookshelf i got a full collection of those um creating innovators is a book i read uh six months ago i'm trying to think who wrote that one uh tony wagner i believe um that was another one i'll often uh when i'm out you know during the course of my job um I mean, I used to be on planes a lot, just going and meeting with entrepreneurs. Now it's lots of Zoom calls. Um, but during the small talk portion, I'll often ask people for like book or podcast recommendations. Mm -hmm. um, so that's where I, I get some of my, uh, my reading material. Yeah, no, that's great. That's awesome. Uh, so the second question is, what's a skill you're trying to develop right now or you'd like to develop in the future? Or if you don't say on the top of your head for that, um, what's maybe an area that you'd like to learn more about or you're interested in learning more about? All right. So you want to do skill first? Sure. Yep. Let's hit, okay. let's hit that one first. So skill, this is not work related. Is that okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, totally good. Totally good. Um, I'm working on my golf game. 
Um, all right. Me too. <laughs> so like, I, uh, I like to have a hobby, you know, my job's kind of all consuming yeah. and being an investor at a time can be stressful, uh, you know, cause you're beholden to the results of the portfolio companies and, you know, they'll have great quarters and then they'll have a bad quarter. And, um, I'm always looking for like a release outside of work. So yeah. I like 10 years ago, I got into CrossFit in a really big way, which I still do as part of my like early morning uh, workout routine. And CrossFit's really cool because if you know anything about it, there's like lots of different movements. And when you start, you're terrible at all of them. <laughs> and yep. Little by little, you start to get better at, you know, a clean and jerk or a snatch or a muscle up or a double under. Um, and then I felt like I kind of plateaued on CrossFit. And then I was looking for like a new challenge. And, uh, you know, working in finance, it's not uncommon for me to get invited to play golf. Um, and for the longest time, like I was not a golfer. So I just would not accept those invites. <laughs> golf to me was just like this puzzle to be solved because yeah. it's like so simple yet so complicated uh, at the same time. And uh, I am in pursuit of the perfect golf swing, but I'm still, I'm still, I'm still a ways away. <laughs> yep. I totally feel that. I've been trying to work on my game too. I started playing like last semester. I go to the range with a bunch of guys who, who are actually good golfers. And I feel like I'm so inadequate. <laughs> but you know, that's the challenge. I think like you gotta, you gotta like embrace the suck. Like you gotta, yeah. it's, I actually like it when I stink at stuff because it's a challenge. Like yeah, it is exactly. a challenge to get better. And then like that pursuit of trying to get better is like such a powerful motivator. Yeah. Um, and I don't care if that's golf or CrossFit or, or work, right? Like, Hey, yeah. shoot, I give you guys credit. Like here you are college guys <laughs> wanting to learn about technology, <laughs> entrepreneurship yep. and, and, and investing. Like, what do you do? You start a podcast where you can meet people. Like I applaud you for that. Yeah, no, it, it, it's been a fun time. Um, okay. So moving on to the next one quickly then is generally, how do you tend to stay up to date with kind of developments in your industry or kind of an entrepreneurship? Um, and are there any specific news sources you'd recommend to any listeners out there? Yeah. So let's see news sources. Um, I mean, there's a couple like email newsletters, um, that everyone in the private equity industry reads. There's one called term sheet, um, that you could subscribe to. Um, there's another one that's put out by Dan Primack, uh, from Axios. Um, but those are kind of the two newsletters that, provide all the kind of deal and new investment announcements and M&A activity every single day. So that's like, those are kind of the first two emails or two of the first emails that a lot of folks read, um, you know, at the beginning of the day, I consume my, my uh, industry knowledge from like lots of different sources. So um, I follow tons of people on Twitter. I'm not, I don't tweet myself, uh, but I follow, I consume <laughs> a lot of content. Yeah. Uh, from Twitter. Um, I just have like all this stuff, like finely tuned uh, to the point where I just feel like I'm constantly like feeding my brain with stuff that's relevant to our focus areas. I would tell you like at Volition, um, you know, part of our routine is um, we do these things called teaching. So we're big believers in, you know, creating a culture of continuous learning and there are always areas and topics that we think are worthy of, of educating ourselves. So, you know, analysts or interns or partners, depending whoever, uh, there might be a topic that you have a, a unique knowledge base on. So you 
pull together some slides. You don't need to, uh, but you could. And then like 15 minutes in the investment meeting, you will educate the firm or at least share some knowledge on a topic that might be relevant to the broader audience. So that could be something as similar, you know, I'm thinking as something as similar as simple, simple as um, like when Bitcoin was a new thing, however many years ago that was, and people are talking about it, but no one really knew what it was. Like someone would do a teaching on Bitcoin, Um, you know, when like, you know, autonomous drones were kind of a new thing, you know, someone would do a teaching on drones. It's not, it's not because we're going to invest in that, but when you're an investor, I think you have to be very curious and just constantly be seeking out new knowledge on emerging trends. And you also have to question how and why things work. Um, And from that, you might identify areas for disruption and how things could be different. And I think key to that is to just be constantly on the the lookout and be feeding your brain, um, you know, with with new information. So we've tried to like institutionalize that as part of our culture. Yeah, no, that's great. I totally agree with that. Um, and so then moving on, to the next one quickly is, who's your favorite CEO, either current CEO or someone from the past? Oh man, uh, I'm not going to name names because okay. I don't know who's going to listen to this. Uh, <laughs> when you ask the question, I immediately think of like the companies in our portfolio. Okay? Yeah. Um, let me just share with you some like qualities. Yeah, sure. Of, sure. That's of great. what makes me really highly value an entrepreneur. I think uh, number one, um, being a steward of capital, right? So I view, let me just look at it through the lens of an investor, right? Like I view it as an enormous responsibility if someone gives us money to invest, right? I talk about like some stress and pressure that comes, um, you know, with the job, with most jobs, but in this job, it's the pressure and responsibility of investing someone else's money and generating a good return, right? So I think entrepreneurs who also recognize that there's a responsibility that comes with that and how does that translate? That translates into, you know, being very, um, you know, focused on where you're allocating that capital and how you're measuring the return on that uh, capital, and also holding holding yourself accountable. Um, people will get it wrong. Uh, you have to own that and learn from it and and get better, right? Um, yeah. I value CEOs that are like really transparent. You know, um, they share the they might even be quicker to share the bad news than they are to share the good news. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at this stage we invest, like we want to be partners with these entrepreneurs on this journey. Um, and in order to do that, we need to have like full knowledge and information of what's going on. Right. Yeah. So just like transparently sharing that information and treating us like a partner, uh, just in the same way we want to, we want to treat them as a partner. I mentioned earlier, I think, uh, you know, to get more specific, I think CEOs that can combine the strategic vision, right? Like they're out there, they're mapping out the vision of the industry and the company's place in that industry while at the same time being like very operationally uh, disciplined and detail oriented. It's rare. Usually CEOs lean one way or the other and are very Mm -hmm. dominant on one versus the other. It's rare to find a CEO that's equally strong in those two, uh, in those two, two categories. Um, 
And then obviously companies that deliver really strong returns and generate great outcomes for us, I'm predisposed to uh, <laughs> doing them uh, rather yeah. favorably. But what's interesting is um, some of my best relationships and uh, in, in those bonding times you have with CEOs are when you're in the, those dark moments, you yeah. know, because because yeah. everyone like behaves well when things are good. <laughs> Certainly, yeah. Um, you don't really know someone until things aren't going so well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and when you can go through the fire with someone and get and come out the other side, like that's incredibly gratifying. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I love what you said about the kind of relationship you build. I, when I, I interned with the VC firm last year and it's like, they view every every investment as like building a relationship as, with this company. I think that's an incredible, incredibly important thing to, to recognize. Um, so then the next question is, if you could start a company in any industry, uh, which would you choose and a little bit about why? I think I've already done it, honest to God. Okay. Like, I love my job. Yeah. Uh, it would be it would be exactly what I'm doing. It would be Volition Capital. Um, I think I think people need to answer that question for themselves, right? So yeah. for me, um, you know, I I love I love the variety of talking to new, interesting, high growth businesses every single day. Actually, we got to wrap this up because in two yeah. minutes I'm talking I'm <laughs> yep. talking to one. I got to be on a call. Uh, I love that. Um, uh, I like the opportunity to then also go deep on a number of select companies that you're choosing to invest in and, and partner with, right? Uh, where hopefully you can have a meaningful impact. Um, yeah. You know, I love, entrepreneurs are like amazing people, like truly, um, they're unique. Like it's not normal to just say like, screw it, man, I'm gonna go start a company and pursue this opportunity, even though there are a million reasons why it will fail. <laughs> um, yeah. Those are like really, interesting people and that's like who i get to interact with yeah. um every day uh which is which is also really cool i also think um you know maybe to go back to the direction you were you were heading uh with the question is i think we're living at in like a very interesting moment in history uh where there is mass massive technology adoption and massive disruption of old line industries uh, so there's a lot of value to be created across a number of different industries and, and asset classes. Um, you know, so I also consider myself like incredibly fortunate, um, you know, to be sitting in the seat I am at, at this point in time. Yeah. Um, but uh, maybe to give you like a, a quick short answer, I'll, I'll just go with low code software since we talked about <laughs> Awesome, awesome. That's great. All right, Sean, I know you got to run. So thank you so much for, for giving us your time. It was a super interesting conversation. I know everyone hopefully learned a lot. Uh, thank you everyone for listening and we'll, hopefully we'll catch you next time. All right, take care guys. All right, everybody, that wraps up our conversation with Sean Camwell from Volition Capital. Now we're going to move into the debrief section where we're going to talk a little bit about ERP or enterprise resource planning, LPs or limited partners, ARR or annual recurring revenue, cohort analysis, and what it means to look at returns such as the one referenced in this podcast, which uh, Sean talked about a 5x return. So to get us started, I'm going to talk a little bit about ERPs or again, enterprise resource planning. So ERPs are really just softwares that companies use to help manage business operations, such as accounting, supply chain, and project management. 
Really, it's a software that the company is paying for that generally makes day-to-day -day operations simpler and more efficient. It's not too complicated. Uh, there's lots out there for different reasons, for different variations, for different kind of aspects of a business. But generally, they are paid for subscription softwares that help the company in one way or another with their daily operations. <clears throat> so move on to the next topic, which is LPs or limited partners, which we talked a little about with Sean. Um, you know, LPs, when looking at kind of a, a growth equity firm, venture capital firm specifically, they are the individuals or the uh, organizations that are generally the contributors of capital to these funds that are going to go out and make, invest make investments. So there's really two sides. I know we've talked about this in a debrief for another podcast, a previous one. And, and what you're looking at is you have the LPs and you have the GPs. So the GPs, the general partners, are making kind of management decisions. They're making the investment decisions, while the LPs are simply providing the capital that is going to be invested by the GPs. So, uh, you know, another important kind of aspect and, and characteristic of this, this relationship is that um, LPs have limited liability for the debts of the company up to the point of their investment, while the GPs, the general partners, they have unlimited liability uh, to the debt obligations of the corporation or the, the company, um, which is, um, you know, a very distinct difference between the two. Uh, and, and then to kind of wrap up this talk about LPs, it's important to understand who general LPs are. So LPs could be anywhere from, you know, massive pension funds that have, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars um, or universities that have billions of dollars of uh, endowments or hundreds of million dollar endowments or they could be high net worth individuals that have a lot of excess cash um, and are looking to put it to use. And then, so they kind of provide that to a venture capital firm, a growth equity firm, private equity, uh, you know, in, in, in the, essentially as an investment. So that kind of wraps up LPs. And then to move on to ARR or annual recurring revenue, what ARR is really trying to do is just get a sense of what revenue would look like over a 12, uh, 12 month period over one year. Um, by looking at a kind of a smaller set of revenue, so it could be over one month, it could be over one quarter, it could be over two months, and then multiplying that by whatever factor you need to get to 12 months, um, and, and then using that as kind of an estimate for comparing this company with uh, other ones in its area. So, right, you could take a firm that uh, generated, <clears throat> you know, $1,000 in revenue, this is obviously very small numbers, but $1,000 revenue in one month, you take that, you multiply it by 12, and you get, okay, now their annual recurring revenue would be $12,000. Obviously you can scale that up. Um, it's pretty common to look at if you have an entire quarter's worth of data to then take that quarter, multiply it by four, and then look at it after there. But every firm is slightly different in this aspect. Um, and, and it really depends on the company as well. Because a lot of these earlier companies, obviously with growth equity, uh, they're, they're much further along and they have more stable revenues. So this is a very valuable um, measure and metric for someone like Sean. But if you're looking at something like venture capital, you're very early stage and you might not have very consistent revenues yet. So you'll try and find you know, a, a group of revenues over whether I said one, two, three, four months that look like they're relatively kind of stable and are capturing like kind of one cycle of the, of the market and then multiply it out and see if you can, you can get that um, estimate for what it will look like over one year. So now I'm gonna hand it over to Connor who, who's gonna talk a little about cohort analysis uh, and what that means and kind of how Sean used that in our conversation. Thanks, Alex. So I'm going to quickly go over cohort analysis. Um, the, you know, the reason why people go do cohort analysis is, is basically that kind of growth is, is really a matter of life or death for, for early stage startups. And it's, it's too easy to focus exclusively on top line growth. Um, you know, there can be mistakes 
made here when you're just analyzing number of users or amount of revenue. Um, you know, this, this data alone isn't really sufficient to understand if your growth is robust or not. So for example, there might be a massive influx of users that are like hiding a weakness in your product. Um, you might see that if you turn off the marketing that you've been doing, the, your marketing spend, your business might collapse and like user growth isn't going to be able to be sustained. Um, you know, so you really need to understand how and why your business is growing in order to plan for the future. And uh, investors often look at this, um, this story uh, when deciding, you know, how they, how and if they want to invest. So cohort analysis is basically where you can track specific users, of, uh, specific groups of users or cohorts, um, and you can kind of understand how these users engage with your product, um, you know, in days, weeks, months uh, after you acquire them. Um, and this really enables you to understand how resilient your growth is and understand the retention of your business. Um, so whether you kind of segment your, your user base um, into, you know, these daily, weekly, or monthly cohorts really depends on the product that you have and what kind of behavior you expect uh, the users to exhibit. So kind of the, the ultimate goal of uh, cohort analysis is to segment these cohorts by the smallest duration that will allow you to quickly iterate and learn from you know, the product that you have. So for example, if you have a new product launch, um, there's, you know, a, a, there's a software development um, um, system or technology uh, known as Agile, um, which basically a lot of companies will deploy new versions of the product every two weeks. So for example, you might want to see how these new iterations on your product are impacting retention um, and engagement by uh, your customers. So this is kind of one example of where cohort analysis could come in. Um, and you want, you know, you want to do this cohort analysis in a way that enables that speed of learning so that you can rapidly iterate on the product and find something that sticks with the customer. So overall, cohort analysis helps to measure retention and growth and make sure that it's able to scale because if you have a bad retention, when you get to a certain size, you know, if you're losing, you know, uh, a good amount of your customer base every month at some point at a certain scale it's hard to keep replacing that large number of customers every month um, so that's kind of the importance of, of retention especially in software businesses with recurring revenues as Alex uh, mentioned um, so the other thing was the Sean mentioned the concept of a 5x return so that simply means uh, it's just a multiple it means that for every one dollar they put into a company they're trying to get five dollars out on exit um, and so this, this multiple is in contrast to the an IRR calculation or internal rate of return. Um, and this considers the time value of money um, where the equity multiple calculation does not. Um, so another kind of way of thinking about the difference between IRR and equity multiple is that IRR reports the percentage rate earned on each invested dollar for each investment period. So for example, if you're putting in $1 and getting out $5, you, the IRR takes into consideration the amount of time that, you, that it took to get that $5 back. If it took three years versus five years, the IRR is going to be very different. Um, whereas the equity multiple is just telling you how much money you got out when you put it in. Uh, it doesn't take into consideration the lifespan of the investment. Um, so yeah, ultimately the goal of investors is to have a high equity multiple and high RRR. Um, but that kind of wraps up uh, the stuff we wanted to talk about in the debrief. We'd encourage you to check out uh, our new newsletter. Uh, you can sign up on our website.
Uh, we've got an awesome team of writers who are doing opinion pieces, industry overviews, and the like. Uh, and we also keep you updated on the new podcast that we have coming out each week. So thanks you all for listening and uh, definitely check out our uh, future episodes.